This is Zoe Chance, author of Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Zoe Chance to talk about her book, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen, published by Random House. Zoe Chance teaches, researches, writes about, and talks about the psychology of influence all the freaking time because it's the secret to happiness, success, and saving the world. Her influence course is the most popular elective at the Yale School of Management, and that course sparked the idea for this book. Her research has been published in places like Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and Harvard Business Review, and she has appeared on stages, TV, and media outlets around the world, including the New York Times, the BBC, CNN, and The Economist. Google used Zoe's behavioral economics framework to design their food policies. Before coming to Yale, she earned a doctorate in marketing from Harvard, worked in sales jobs like door-to-door sales and telemarketing, and managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand at Mattel. She's donating half her profits from this book to help solve the climate crisis. And interesting fact... She once had a starring role in an obscure karate movie so boring that both her parents fell asleep watching it. Zoe, congratulations on Influence is Your Superpower, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for that enthusiastic and well-researched bio. (laughs) Yeah, it is true about my parents. So, you know, reading your book was so much fun, and you revealed so many interesting things about your, your life that we could probably spend the first 15 minutes just on other interesting facts I pulled from the book. Like, for instance, you once taught a class on how to pick up guys. <laughs> this is not in the book, listeners. It is not. <laughs> it <the> is. <laughs> There's a page. Oh, this, that part is in the book? Yes, okay. yes. You got to be careful when you're being interviewed by somebody who <laughs> actually just read your book because you, you you were talking about maybe it was a joke because you said you know when you when you uh, to learn something you have to to teach it and when you teach something you really have learned it and you gave a few examples and it said how to pick up guys yeah no that now I do remember that <laughs> thank you for actually reading um, it's so funny when you write a book like you you and I've read it even including narrating the audio book oh. and read it through multiple other times. Um, but it's easy to forget what's in your life and what's in the book. I did teach how to pick up guys. I've taught, um, and I did that as an audition to for 
teaching some other thing that they were deciding who to hire. Oh. And that was really fun. And I brought props and all of us were picking up guys, including, you know, whatever your sexual orientation was and whatever your gender. Sure. So that was really fun. Um, and then in another completely different context, I taught a giant group of women how to flirt. Oh, and they wow. went out in Miami and they they just went out into the wild and uh, flirted with people oh. and brought some of them back. And it was really, really fun. And really, all of this is just so much about playfulness and connection, right? Yes. And so, uh, if it's okay, rather than talk about your book, can we just talk about those two subjects, how to flirt <laughs> with guys and how to pick up guys? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, there was I'm another- Flirting with women, very similar. Flirting, okay. Okay. So, when you, when you were growing up during thunderstorms, as I read this, you and your dad would shoot a rifle into the fireplace because the neighbors wouldn't be able to hear it? Yeah, that was a handgun, but he <laughs> oh. did have a couple of rifles as Okay. Well. Yeah. yeah that, that was just a twenty-two. Okay, and you got a cat named Dave, which uh, really it went through the scanner and it freaked out the TSA guys. Anyway, I, oh hope, my God, I hope yeah. Dave and, is and doing well. And the cat well. is named after my dad. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, I was interested just before we started recording, you said this is going to be in 28 languages. The book, uh, yeah. Yes. I'm so excited. Uh, so, uh, you know, listeners around the world, they'll be uh, excited to hear that. So, um, let me just read an excerpt from. Um, the very beginning, and then uh, ask you a few questions about the book. This is from uh, page four. When people are asked if they'd like to be more influential, they say yes, because influence is power. Being influential gives us the ability to create change, direct resources, and move hearts and minds. It acts like gravity, pulling us together into relationships. It's a path to happiness, to prosperity that's meaningful, durable, and contagious. But when people are asked about influence strategies and influence tactics, they describe them as manipulative, sneaky, and coercive. The whole idea of influence has been corrupted by tacky, greedy people using tacky, greedy tactics to sell used cars, to promote sponsors' products on social media, and to get us to buy now while supplies last. Even some of my favorite influence gurus like Robert Cialdini and Chris Foss encourage us to use weapons of influence for beating our opponents. Marketers, I'm one of them, refer to customers as targets, like a pickup artist or a con artist might. Academic researchers, I'm one of them too, have called study participants subjects and their experiments manipulations. Transactional influence treats people like objects. These tactics might be standard for sales and marketing, but they just don't work in most everyday situations. They don't work with your boss, your colleagues, your employees, your friends, or your family. If you want to build a relationship and maintain one, you can't use the same tricks you'd use to sell a car. Even business success ultimately depends on long-term relationships in the form of referrals, word of mouth, customer loyalty, and employee retention. You want people to be happy to say yes, both today and in the future. When you become someone people want to say yes to, you are heavily rewarded. Money might not be your top priority, but it helps you get other things done, and it can be a benchmark for influence. It's no coincidence that jobs relying on interpersonal influence are well compensated. Top salespeople make more money than their CEOs. Lobbyists earn more than the politicians they can influence. Becoming more influential pays other tangible dividends too. Doctors who communicate better are far less likely to be sued for malpractice regardless of their patients' outcomes, and executives who are trained to communicate get rated as better leaders. 
people who shift from transactional win-lose influence to the personal mutual influence you'll be rediscovering in this book can reap intangible rewards like becoming a better friend, a more trusted advisor, and a more engaged partner and parent. We can rekindle the childhood spark that had us dreaming, asking, advocating, negotiating, and persisting without second-guessing ourselves. We can see faces light up when we share a great idea or propose something crazy that just might work. We can shake on deals we were embarrassed to even dream of. We can enjoy the comfort and freedom that come from success, and we can sigh in relief as our resistant boss, employee, child, parent, partner, or friend smiles and says, okay, let's do it. So, Zoe, on that same uh, page, you write that kind people, people who are kind, are particularly reluctant to try to influence others because they don't want to manipulate anyone, and smart people are more likely to misunderstand the way influence works. Explain. It's really unfortunate. If you're smart and kind, well, it kind of, it's a double liability. (laughs) And you are less influential than you could be if you fall into those traps. However, being kind and being smart can be strengths if you understand how influence works and if you're willing to do, if you're willing to take the steps. So, Many, when I say many people, I mean really almost all of us, even if we're comfortable with influence in some areas of our life, are reluctant to even try to influence people or advocate for ourselves or maybe ask or say no in other areas. And I'm curious, Douglas, if there's anything in your life that is not as easy for you to ask for or um, negotiate or people you might say no to. I don't know. Is there? Well, I think uh, I sometimes find it difficult to ask probing questions like if I'm in a sales situation or, uh, you know, like the follow-up questions. Sometimes those are are difficult because I'm so uh, overly sensitive to appearing uh, intrusive. Mm. And follow-up questions are so important, right? (laughs) Follow It's not just so important for the information that you get, but you're saying that because follow-up questions are exactly the questions that have other people like us. Yes, yes. So and so they're like they if if they don't have this resistance to you in that sales role, mm-hmm. then they're excited to have you ask them follow-up questions. But I hear what you're saying that when you're trying to persuade somebody. They, can, they have this inner two-year-old that pops up like, you don't tell me what to do. And they can be very <laughs> defensive. And then, and you don't know, like, is it okay? Right. Ask a follow-up question. And you're, you're saying you have this, it sounds like mild reluctance, but that comes up sometimes because you, you don't want to bother people. You don't want to annoy them, right? right. You don't want to be intrusive because you are a kind person. Well, thank you. Um, also, my father-in-law was a Freudian psychoanalyst. Whoa. Psychotherapist, and his wife was a psychologist. And they used to just ask me these really intrusive questions. So pretty pretty early on in my relationship with my wife, it was like, I don't I don't really want to answer these questions. I'm you know, I'm not a patient of your parents. So um, I, I say that knowing they were I'm sure they were trying to to help. But this that was just their training. You know, they were they were yeah. very, very good at that. So And that was their way of listening kindly. Probably. Yes. And I want to talk. 
you're previewing everything I'm going to ask you about the the questions and the and the listening. But let's go back. Yeah, should we go back to the smart people part? Well, I want to. What I want to do is talk about how decision making happens in daily life. I've I've heard this before, but the way you presented it really made it clear. And you've kind of wiped away all the other paradigms I've been using about our how our brains work. You know, system one, system two. But explain what you mean when you write that once you appreciate that most behavior reflects very little thinking, in quotes, at all, you can make simple but transformative adjustments to how you're trying to influence other people. So, talk about uh, how we think, and uh, maybe this is the time to introduce the gator and the judge. Sure. This concept or paradigm comes from behavioral economics. It's not something that I've invented. It's the foundational framework of behavioral economics. And I know many of your listeners are already interested in behavioral economics, and many of them haven't really heard of it or don't really know what it is. It's basically the love child of psychology and economics. Yes, and I and, underlined that in the book and wrote, ha, off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say it was so entertaining. Behavioral <laughs> economics is the love child of psychology and economics. We're talking a lot about love on this episode. It's so <laughs> yes. sweet. Um, and this book really is a love story. So this foundational concept is technically called system one and system two, like you just said, Douglas. But as I'm teaching behavioral economics, I found that's not very sticky. And it's easy to forget which is which and exactly what they do. So I use the analogy of a gator and a judge. And these two systems work together, sometimes collaboratively and sometimes in competition, to determine 100% of all of our thinking and all of our behavior. And the big misunderstanding is which one is in charge and which one is more powerful. That So we think that the powerful one is the conscious one that's like a judge. It's slow, deliberate, it's effortful, it takes conscious attention, and it's like a human judge carefully deciding at cases based on the evidence, pro, con, analysis, information, data. This is the world we think we live in because that's the one that's conscious. But the truth is the vastly more powerful one is the other one, the unconscious one that I use the analogy of a gator because the an alligator, this is not what you think about a gator, people. The definitive feature of an alligator compared to every other animal is that this is the laziest creature on earth. It's the most efficient, laziest being. The dominant response by alligators to everything in the world, all of the threats and opportunities that it's constantly scanning for is nothing. It ignores almost everything that comes across its radar. And that is how we respond to almost all influence attempts that come across our radar as well. So it's key to remember this part about alligators and to have it sink into your mind in a concrete way how lazy they are. All you need to know is that they can go up to three years (laughs) without eating anything at all. Amazing. I remember that. I, I, I was floored when I read that. Isn't that wild? And so you can think of this unconscious part of your mind lurking like an alligator below the surface of your conscious awareness. And this is where your emotions are seated, your habitual behavior, and your snap judgments. This part of your mind is very, very quick and it's effortless. You actually can't prevent yourself from having these gut reactions and snap judgments. This is where social biases come in as well. And 
all that you can hope for when you're trying to reach someone is that you get through that gate or gatekeeper if you want them to be consciously, carefully processing the information you give them. But because the gator is fast and the judge is slow, everything, everything comes through the gator first. And that means anytime you want to try to influence somebody, you need to have the gator part of it work out (laughs) if you have any hope of influencing the judge. And sometimes you don't need the judge at all. Right, right. It, I just loved it. The, the gator acts as a filter that determines what reaches the judge's conscious awareness. And also, I, my sense is that you get a lot of pushback. People saying, probably some of your students, uh, saying, no, no, I'm a, I'm a rational person. Right. Uh, make All up the your engineers own, and yeah, accountants. I was just going to say, make up your own engineer joke. And, yes. <laughs> and you go on to say, this isn't an intelligence thing. It's funny you say the gator doesn't take requests. The gator's in charge. The gator has the upper hand. But explain what you mean when you write that the judge is also a bullshit artist. Yeah, this is a piece that even most people who are interested in behavioral economics um, don't know about, haven't thought about, haven't read about, that one of the big functions of the gator is to persuade the judge. The judge is inherently biased, and it's biased by the gator. And so what that means is, Whenever it's processing information, it's doing that having already gotten gator input. So the input can be what you want, what you fear, what you assume based on past experience, what your habitual behavior is, your biases. And then the judge is trying to be rational, but actually reason is an influence process. So the judge is looking for reasons to approve or deny the case at hand. And it's doing that based on lots of input from the judge, or sorry, based on lots of input from the gator. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the studies that I share in the book, there are a bazillion um, studies that I share in this book if you decide to read it, but a very simple one to prove this piece of it is with actual judges that I talk about this study of 1,100 parole decisions, looking at time of day and how likely the prisoners were to get out on parole. And at the beginning of the day, a prisoner has about a two-thirds chance of being set free to go home, and that number declines to approximately zero. There's a spike up to about two-thirds again, decline again, another spike, and then a decline till the end of the day. And anyone who's listening, I challenge you to just consider for yourself what might have accounted for the spikes. And my guess is that if you thought about it, you were probably right that the judges need a break and they need a snack. They needed the gator was getting hungry. <laughs> exactly. What happened was they were using conscious brain power and it's getting depleted because this judge part is effortful. Mm-hmm. And so you run out of it and you can run out of it because you get physically tired, but you can also run out of it because you get mentally exhausted. And all of us have had that experience when um, you're doing, say you're interviewing a number of people, like one after the other, you get tired or you're taking classes, right? Remember when you were a student mm-hmm. and you just get really tired of listening, even if you have a great teacher, So when our conscious resources get depleted, we're in gator mode, and gators almost always do what's easy. And in Mm -hmm. this case, the easy decision is, well, they're a criminal, so they should be in jail. And that ties in with something that really got my attention. I don't 
you know, I've read all these books, but I, I learn really so much every time I read one. I, I slap my head thinking, Douglas, how do you not know these things? <laughs> you talk about the bedrock principle of influencing behavior is this. People tend to take the path of least resistance. Ease. And this is really important for business owners out there. Ease is the single best predictor of behavior. Better than motivation, intentions, price, quality, or satisfaction. There's a little-known marketing metric for measuring ease called the customer effort score that comes down to a simple question. How easy was it? And I think that uh, there, there was another book uh, on the show a couple of years ago called Friction by Ro- uh, Roger Dooley, a whole book about this, where if companies would just think about or, or ask themselves the first time, how easy are we making it for people to buy from us? And, and just to add to that, you mentioned that this um, customer effort score is actually more predictive of customer loyalty than customer satisfaction, which is, uh, seems to be the only thing I'm ever asked about. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. Yeah. It's also more predictive than word of mouth, net promoter score. But the those of you who are not familiar with the net promoter score know it as word of mouth. And that was a big deal when it was discovered that, wow, word of mouth is more predictive of customer loyalty than customer satisfaction is. But customer effort score has been shown in multiple huge studies, including hundreds of thousands of customers, to be more predictive than both of those. So, Yes, thank you for bringing this up, Douglas. And anyone listening to the show, if you take away only one thing, this really is the best thing that I can share with you about influencing people's behavior. Make it as easy as possible to do whatever it is you're hoping they will do. And if you don't know how to make it easier, you can ask them, you can observe them. (laughs) They'll tell you. (laughs) They will... They will tell you anything they know about the friction that they're facing. Mm -hmm. There may be things that you could do to make it easier that they just wouldn't have thought of. True. But an interesting thing about the customer effort score that's a nuance that's important is that the real thing that's influencing behavior isn't the friction itself, but it's the experience Mm -hmm. of the friction or the expectation of the friction. Right. Their, what, their perception of it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's what customer effort score measures. Mm-hmm. And so there can be things that we do that savvy businesses do that make a process feel easier that don't actually change, say, the amount of time. Like just having a clean, minimalist aesthetic on your website helps it feel easier to do whatever someone's trying to do on the website. Or when you have, um, like Domino's having this, for anyone who orders pizza from Domino's, you've seen their status tracker and you get to know exactly where your pizza is. It's kind of like the simple version of Uber. Just knowing where the car is while you're waiting helps the wait go more quickly. So Mm. it feels easier Mm -hmm. to get an Uber even though you're waiting the same amount of time. So this is the key thing Yes, make it easier, but make sure you make it feel easier. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. 
With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. So uh, years ago, I had a sales trainer. One expression he often used was, uh, no is my second favorite word, meaning he, he would rather get a no from a prospect quickly. Uh, <laughs> so he wouldn't waste time. But in a, in a somewhat unrelated area, but, but which you talk about in the book, explain how the word no could be a lifesaver. I think no is my number one favorite word. <laughs> <laughs> and it's my number one favorite word because... It's really empowering and it almost feels like magic. And first of all, when we as would be aspiring and on the path of accruing and gaining more influence people decide that we're actually okay with the other person saying no, that's when we've really recognized that other person as a human being who has their own agency. They have their own free will. And we not just won't force them to do anything, but we can't force them to do anything and we respect them. So being okay with the other person saying no is transformative. Being okay with ourselves saying no is transformative in a completely different way where Almost none of us realize how much we are people pleasers, and mm -hmm. almost all of us are people pleasers. Those of us who know that we're people pleasers, actually, it's probably even more extreme than we realize. And there are many people, including maybe you listening, who don't really think that we're people pleasers. But then if I invite you and you say yes to take on the challenge of doing the no challenge, you'll find out that you're a people pleaser too. And if you anybody wants to take on the new challenge, it's this, it's the 24 hour no challenge. And you say no to everyone who asks you for something over a 24 hour period. And it, it seems kind of crazy and it might yeah. be hard and you know, everybody, please don't ruin your life. Like we were talking about love earlier. If your sweetie proposes to you and you wanted to say yes, don't be like, no. Um, <laughs> but, and so you, you know, you're the boss, you take care of your own life. But when you say no in situations where you would habitually say yes, you're noticing this habit that you have, you start realizing that you didn't die and the other person didn't try to kill you. And almost all the time people are asking us for things. They're not assuming that we'll say yes. They're just hoping that we'll say yes, but they're perfectly able to survive if we didn't, then as we get practice, we can say no in a warm way and maybe even a warm and enthusiastic way that's not saying no to the person unless we wanted to cut off that relationship, but it's just saying no to this thing for now. Mm -hmm. When you start to get comfortable with this, you realize, wow, I have been 
giving up my time, which is my most valuable resource that I will ever have, as though it's a public good, and anyone on earth can just come and open up my calendar and see if there's a free spot on it, and they just get to take this most valuable thing that I have. That's really crazy. You realize I've also been sacrificing in all these situations where it's a person that I love, but I wasn't even doing them that much good, and it was kind of a big sacrifice for me. And so, and you start to just feel this confidence that you didn't even know that you lacked Mm -hmm. until you started saying no. I had a a month, I read in the book about a month of saying no, where (laughs) this was the November challenge. Oh, that's right. I had a bunch of my Facebook friends to participate and we did this in a group. It was really fun. So you can ask your friends too. But there's an additional transformative piece about the word no, which is why I love it, that when you get to that stage of feeling comfortable with the idea of other people saying no, your asks shift dramatically so that you are asking without any pressure. And that means that the other person is not resistant to you. So where when you're needy, you put out this pressure that's easy for other people to resist. They want to. They don't want to say yes to you if you need this thing, right? But if you just approach them like, hey, I've got this great idea. Would you like to hear it? There's no pressure there and they want to lean in and definitely consider saying yes. They're inclined to say yes and then they'll make up their own mind about it. So this was a long way of saying no magically leads to yes. Well, and I appreciate you saying yes when I invited you on the podcast. So That was easy, Douglas. <laughs> but it's... I think it's the part of the book where you talked about you were selling door-to-door as a student, I think, in Denver, selling uh, dry-cleaning coupons and something like that. And you went to your very first door. You knocked on the door, and a lady answered, and she said no, and you were so relieved afterwards, like, wow, I— I'm still okay. I'm still walking. I'm breathing. That that probably gave you a lot of, uh, you know, uh, good energy and confidence. So much confidence. And this is why I wish every single person on earth at some point in their life would have a sales job so that they can learn to handle rejection. It is so freaking empowering and confidence building to learn to handle rejection. Uh, yes. And uh, rejections, as you say, can inoculate you against the paralyzing fear of rejection. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. But I, as I read it, I said, yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly the case. It's a great word, uh, you know, inoculate. So. Yeah. And Douglas, can I just mention something while we're talking about ease, making it easy for the other person, whoever it is that you're hoping to influence is not always easy for you. So we all want everything to be easy, but the if you want to influence someone else, then it's making it easy for them that counts. And something that you've done with me, and you were talking about, you know, you're happy that I said yes, I'm happy I said yes too. And you made it really easy, not just to say yes to being on the podcast with the information that you share, but making it easy to be prepared and try to have a great conversation with you. Like, do listeners know about the videos that you've made for guests? This is amazing. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes here at the Marketing Book Podcast. Really? Like, I've had 
so many podcast interviews, like probably about 50 right now for this book. And Douglas, you have been by far the most prepared, at least from what I could tell. I know there have been some other people who spent time behind the scenes, but the care with which you prepare and then you read the whole book and you go through and you remember stories that I didn't even <laughs> remember, right? right? So you're making it so easy for me, mm. but this is a whole lot of work for you. Right. Well, it's it's something uh, I really enjoy doing it. This is kind of the fun thing I get to do. I don't do this for a living. But what Zoe's talking about is there's a video I've made for authors just for them saying these are just a handful of a few things, you know, things you need to do to make sure you sound good so that I don't sound better than you do. And I, four out of 400 interviews will have pushed back on that, but most of them are, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and so, I went and bought a whole new mic and set up because oh, of your wow. video. So you influenced well, me good. and I was happy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you write that along with saying no, the easiest thing you can do to become more influential is just ask. Really? <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing that I teach this class. It's a graduate level class at an <laughs> Ivy League school. And at the end of our intense seven week boot camp, where we've had so many strategies and so much science and all this transformation going on and all these incredible successes, when students file across the stage and they share, biggest best thing I'm taking away is, and always every single year, the most common answer is just ask. And this is another thing like no, where we don't realize how uncomfortable it is to say no, or how it's not our default reaction until we start practicing no. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we don't realize how uncomfortable we are asking or how rarely we do it and still until we start practicing it more consciously. And then as you start practicing this and doing it more often, the whole world opens up <laughs> in this way. It's like the red pill from the matrix. Yes. And you go, oh my God, how did nobody show me this before? That I get to have so much more power to create the world that I live in. And other people are so much nicer than I realized. And they like me more than I knew. And I thought if I advocated for myself, asked for stuff, and it doesn't always have to be for you, it can be for other people too, and you can do great stuff, right? I thought if I was going to do more of that, that people would like me less. And you can do it in annoying ways. <laughs> and some people have a little a little runway that they have to get through of being annoying for a while. But there's there's a very graceful way to do this that's it's charming and inspiring and compelling and that it's when you're navigating the world without pressure. Mm -hmm. So you're asking, but there's no pressure in those asks. And then people are getting excited to be part of this thing that you have going on or you're you're so charming that they were excited for you to be happy. Mm -hmm. And they're joyful to make you happy if they can. And just asking is so simple, but it's so deeply important. And one of the complexities of asking that's that I care very deeply about is that there are vast disparities in asking. 
along gender lines and along race and socioeconomic status lines, that overall people who feel more powerful and privileged are much more comfortable asking and they have more experience asking and they're more likely to even know that they can ask. And people who feel like they have less power and privilege, and maybe they do have less power and privilege and um, different education and things like this are less likely to ask, less likely to know that they can ask, and more likely to have had parents who taught them self-reliance rather than influence. Mm. So their parents were trying to do them a favor. And this happens a lot for kids who grew up in working class families. And this happens even more for girls than for boys. Yes. Related to gender, um, explain uh, what you mean when you, you say when you're making up your own mind about whom to ask, consider asking men. Women get asked for help and favors far more often than men do, and women are expected to say yes, and women do more often say yes when asked for help. But that doesn't mean, first of all, that it's a good idea for us to keep asking women because women are sharing this. It, people call it emotional labor. I don't understand that term really, but invisible labor and carrying an invisible burden for sure in families and workplaces and things where women will do the planning and they will do the administration and all this kind of stuff. Um, but also, this is just really just, um, it's selling men short. There's so many men who when you ask them for help or favor or collaboration, they're absolutely delighted to be asked. <laughs> they just, it didn't occur to them that you needed something or could have used something or that they could be any part of it. So when when we're asking women, we're putting an extra burden on women. And we're also really, we're almost disrespecting men by thinking that they're not as kind as they are or not as willing as they actually are to help. And about asking, just one more thing I want to make sure gets to land with listeners who are, all of us are leaders in some contexts. Whatever context you're a leader in, it's so important that you don't wait for other people to ask. Because if you wait for other people to ask and then you're just reflexively generous, then you're perpetuating all of these inequalities between groups of people who are more likely to ask and groups of people who are less likely to ask. So you're giving power to the already powerful. Yes. And so the, the men I think would be more receptive than a lot of people realize at, you know, offering help or, or whatever you need help with. Does that resonate with you at all? As a, like, I'm not a guy, so I, I can't say. Yeah. I don't, I don't have people ask me for my, I, I, yeah, I guess it did resonate with me, but it just had just never occurred to me. But I also thought, that it was great advice. <laughs> I think a lot of people might reflexively be asking more women for help and, and not even knowing that they're doing that. So yeah, right. uh, consciously sure thinking about know. asking a man for help, I, I just had never uh, thought, of, thought of that. So again, one of the things that really, uh, really struck me. So when you ask people which influence skill they like to develop, the most common response by far is 
charisma. So explain, if we could talk a little bit about charisma, there's a line in the book where you say charisma isn't something you are, it's something you do. Yes, I think a lot of people assume that charisma is something that you're born with. And it took me a long time to realize that that's not the case at all. And the best example that I can think of was what I learned after I had this experience that was one of my peak moments of my life going to a Prince concert because he was my idol. I had adored him since I was a child. And finally, I got to go and see him perform live in his little studio in Las Vegas, Club 2121. And he's so charismatic. He's so freaking charismatic. And I knew it's going to be a great show. We're all waiting for a couple of hours. It's hot. It's loud. They're showing videos and we're all just, <laughs> anticipation is building and building. And Prince takes the stage. And I am absolutely sure he looks directly into my eyes. And his first line of his first song is something like, are we alone? And I just catch my breath and I turn to my friend and I put my hand in his arm and go, oh my God, I'm about to faint because I felt like, oh. and then the woman next to me who's a total stranger falls down in a dead faint unconscious. <laughs> and the paramedics come in and they're loading her onto a stretcher. And I said, oh my God, has this ever happened before? And they said, it's not the first time. Prince's charisma is like this laser, like, ba-bam, and you fall. But it turned out, I found out later after this, that he was not only not born charismatic, but when he first got started as a performer, he really sucked. He sucked so much that Warner Brothers, when they signed a contract with him, said, you will never go on tour. He had a number one hit single, I Want to Be Your Lover, on the Billboard charts before he ever got to perform because when Warner Brothers saw him, he was quiet and he was shy and he as he performed this audition, he slowly turned his back to the audience so that they couldn't even see his face. That's how bad he was. But then Rick James, when Prince at least has a very successful hit song, says, listen, come on the Super Freak Tour and you can be my warm-up act. And so Prince starts the tour. Apparently at the beginning, he still sucks and people are booing him off the stage. And of course, he's at the like way vanguard before the time of gender fluidity and he's wearing women's lingerie and things like that, which doesn't fly. But, but just over the course of this tour, he's watching and emulating Rick James, who's ridiculously charismatic and he's learning things like call and response and how to relate to the audience and how to look to them talk to them listen to them and by the end of the tour according to rick james rick james is jealous because prince is such an electric performer so what was he doing that uh we could do to become more uh charismatic well I would say it's not the uh, wearing your underwear in public, although that does get you attention. Okay, I'll stop doing <laughs> that, but go ahead. I mean, do wear your underwear, but just like wear things over your underwear oh. in public. But um, man, there's so many life you, hacks you know, I'm picking up here. You, no, listen, do whatever you want. You don't. You can you can skip the underwear okay. um, or wear the underwear. It's just the overwear that counts. <laughs> and 
what Prince learned, what he was doing is how to focus his attention on other people. And that's what I felt when I almost fainted. I'm sure that's what the woman next to me felt. And this is what people say or what they mean when they talk about a charismatic person like Bill Clinton is someone yes, who comes just, up a lot, right? I heard that he, I've heard it so many times that when he was talking to someone, you felt like you were the only person in the room. Exactly. Yes. This is because charismatic people can focus their attention intently on one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And and what happens even when you're in a group is that you get this electric connection with one individual, but then when you have that connection, other people can feel it vicariously as well. And we do an exercise in class where I take someone who hates public speaking, typically. and Which would probably be most people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, public speaking is really scary. I'm a professional speaker, and I still get stage fright. I still get nervous. A lot of professional speakers do. So it is a scary thing. And wh- what we do is, with someone who hates public speaking, so the deck is stacked against them, and I feel sorry for them, but they're very brave, and they volunteer. I teach them this thing called shining that I mm. write about in the book. And you can read about exactly how to do this, but what they're doing is they're connecting with people in the audience one by one. And the way that they know they're connecting with them is the whole audience has their hands raised until they feel a connection and then the hand goes down. And so they connect with one person just until that one person puts their hand down. And then when that person puts their hand down, they connect with another person until that person puts their hand down. And then what's really, really cool as they go through the room, in a room of, say, 30 people, even a unpracticed speaker who doesn't like public speaking can connect with most or even all of the room in just five minutes this way. Uh huh. But what happens is when they get in the rhythm and they get this connection and they get that connection, you see hands going down in other parts of the room. And when it's very deep, then you see lots of hands going down all over the room. But we can be charismatic even when we're not talking about just actually speaking from a stage. But when we're in conversation with someone, it's the same idea of focusing your attention on the other person. And you can think of how being self-conscious is the opposite of being charismatic. Hmm. So what's the opposite of being self-conscious? It's focusing your attention on someone else. And you can do that very simply by asking questions, asking follow-up questions, using their name, things like that. Yes, you write that uh, you attract other people's attention by giving them yours. So, Zoe, chapter five on page 98 is titled and I see what you did here. The life-changing magic of a simple frame with a shout out to Marie Kondo. But I want to state something from the end of that chapter and ask you to explain it. You write, framing is a simple tool for unlocking the secrets of massive power. Explain. <laughs> I think you know what I did this, there. I I see what you did there, Douglas. Um, this phrase just like Marie Kondo's title of her book that I can share in a second. This phrase contains the three frames that I find to be the most useful frames. But first, just what I mean when I say a frame is a perspective 
And I also mean a label. And that's why it gets kind of confusing sometimes when people talk about framing in the context of influence. So a label is just the title of something or name of something. And the perspective is what are you seeing from your particular point of view when you think about or talk about this topic. And um, the three frames, and I write about this in great detail and plenty of examples, um, and then I have a list of words you can use with these frames in the book, but are monumental, mysterious, and manageable. Mm -hmm. And these are three frames that connect directly to the gator brain in specific ways to capture gator attention. Because we talked about already, most of the time the gator is ignoring everything. Mm -hmm. But if you say, hey, this is really important, use, use words that signify importance, so then gator perks up and says, maybe I should pay attention to that. Or you s give words that signify mystery and spark curiosity. It indicates, hey, you don't know what's going to come next, so maybe this is worth paying attention to. Or we've talked about ease a lot. The frame of manageability says, hey, this thing is going to be easy. Don't worry about it. Piece of cake. So all of these three are attracting the gator, but there are an infinite number of frames that you could use. These are just three that are really, well, they're easy to use. Well, what <laughs> so would be an example of a, a frame, just so people would understand uh, what, a, what a frame is? Um, a frame, so you have that that phrase that you just shared with us. Could you read that one more time? Framing is a simple tool for unlocking the secrets of massive power. And so the listener knows that actually contains all three frames. <laughs> yeah. So the massive power there, the massive says this is monumental. Massive power sounds like that could be really important, mm -hmm. right? Unlocking secrets. This mysterious. Is mysterious. Yeah. And simple tool says it's easy. Mm -hmm. Manageable. And yeah. The manageable frame. Yep. And Marie Kondo's title of her book that I was ripping off in the frame of the <laughs> chapter was The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And life-changing, monumental, magic, mysterious, tidying up, totally manageable. Right. And she could have called it, I don't know, what was it? Japanese home organizations? <laughs> yeah. Something. I mean, that, that's what the book was, right? Like, yeah. Housekeeping like a Japanese person. Well, you would not have sold 38 million copies or right. whatever it is. Well, I just want to mention one thing. I don't know if we have time to get through it, but this you have one section on, on listening, and it's a, such a superpower, but I don't know how well it's understood. And you've got real practical advice on how to be a better listener. You know, they all say, be, be a better listener, but I had, I had never seen uh, such clear advice on how to listen better. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I was frustrated myself trying to understand listening better as I've been trying to teach listening better. So I'm glad if I can yeah. contribute to well, what I'm glad I'm not really the only one that didn't. A dearth of good. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Zoe, what would it take for you to explain the magic question? <laughs> I see what you did there. The, <laughs> the magic question is my favorite influence tool. So, all it takes is just ask, and you did. And the reason it's my favorite influence tool is because it's so easy. So people love to use it. And anyone listening, if you haven't already gotten something that is your 
thing that you want to take away and actually practice from this. I'm not the boss of you. You don't have to do it, but you've spent this time already invested in listening to this conversation. I recommend the magic question. Um, and there's plenty of other stuff in the book that we didn't cover. Um, but this particular one, I love because you can use it in almost any situation with almost anyone, as long as you have basic rapport already. And you can use it even with people you've taught the magic question. And Douglas has just said the magic question, which is, what would it take? What would it take? Oh, it my take? That's goodness. That's all it is. And a brief example of how this works and how it's cool is um, a story of what happened when in this medical device company called Guidant, where I interned as an MBA student, they had the good problem that demand was outstripping supply. And the problem part of it, though, was that employees needed to come in and work overtime, three shifts a day between Thanksgiving and Christmas, when no one wants to do that. And Ginger Graham, who was the number two leader in the company at the time, had to go to the employees and ask them to come in and work overtime. Of course, she needs to give them money, right? But if you just give carrots, then when the carrots run out, people aren't excited to keep working. And if you give somebody a giant carrot, you might influence their behavior in that moment, but they can even feel like a slave, mm -hmm. right? If that's all you did. So she says, listen, here's the situation. Of course, people coming and doing the overtime will get bonuses. What I want to know is what would it take for you to be happy to come in or willing to come in and put in these extra hours? And they realize that she's open to being influenced by them, even as she's trying to influence them. And they feel respected, which is a key part of the magic question. And they give her some answers that she never could have thought of on her own. Yes. They say, um, listen, we really need help with transportation because we take the bus and it doesn't run at night. She's an executive. She doesn't know about buses. Mm -hmm. They said, we're hungry. We like pizza. Okay, great. Good to know what food you want. And they said, and something that's really stressing us out this time of year is wrapping Christmas presents. So if you would hire a Christmas present wrapper, that would really mean a lot. So she does these things and production hits record levels and everybody <laughs> got, I think it was a 30% bonus. And then the important thing is after this period, they're still engaged and they're still happy to come back to work and they like working at this place where they're respected and they're listened to. So the magic question, what would it take? Go use it with anybody about anything. Just don't have it be the first question that you ask. Like, don't be like a used car salesman. Like, you know, somebody walks into and they're like, what would it take for you to walk out of here <laughs> right. with a car today? Yeah, but you said you've already got rapport. You're probably already having a conversation. You 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 know uh, one another. But I loved it. What would it take? Yeah, it, and it's not a magic wand. <laughs> it's a magic question, and it's most often the beginning of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. Yes. And some people will ask when I teach this. So, but what if what they want is a lot more than I'm able to or willing to provide? Like, let's say you asked your kid, what would it take for you to get your room clean tonight? And she's like, a pony. You don't have to give her a pony. Just asking the question doesn't mean... You d you're not you're committing. To, yeah, it doesn't mean you're committed. It's just a conversation. Right. right? 
Right. Oh, it works on so many, so many levels. Well, I just two other things I want to ask about the book, and I want, one topic that I did not know much about, which is chapter seven and a half. And I love how you title your chapters. Like, there's chapter three, chapter three and a half, <laughs> and chapter nine, chapter nine and three quarters. Do you, Do you know why it was nine and three quarters? I'm just curious. No. The Harry Potter listeners oh. <laughs> on the podcast will know why it's nine and three quarters. Okay. All right. Well, see, I didn't catch everything, so you're not target market for Harry Potter. Probably so not. Although my expected. my kids uh, and my wife really like those books too. So the title it's about a topic I'm not very familiar with, and it's called negotiating while female. And you know, one day I dreamed that my daughter, who's an executive in New York City, might one day listen to old dad on his podcast, and I just thought, you know, <laughs> maybe if she hears this, I will have done a good job. But you write. When I lead workshops about influence skills like sales or public speaking, the topic of gender sometimes comes up. In negotiations, workshops, gender always comes up. And when I'm teaching negotiations to a group of women, we rarely get through the material. Why is that? (laughs) Women have a lot of strong feelings about negotiation and love talking about negotiation. I love talking about negotiation with women. And it's interesting when we consider this in the context of framing, like we were talking about a moment ago, that negotiation doesn't have to be anything different from asking or collaborating or Mm -hmm. figuring things out together or problem solving. But this frame of negotiation makes a lot of people and especially a lot of women really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I find in my surveys, so other surveys have shown the same kinds of effects, but we all get different numbers. I find 43% of men like or love negotiating and only 17% of women like or love negotiating. And I believe a big reason for this is Hollywood, that they have just given us a terrible idea, a terrible frame for what a negotiation is like. We think of it being that there's a bully and there's a sucker. And we don't want to be either one of those things. Mm -hmm. And women especially don't want to be either one of those things. And there's also cultural gender dynamics where um, women can get judged more harshly if they are perceived as being not warm. And so women do have more challenges than men do Mm -hmm. in a negotiation. So it's not imaginary that um, that this can be a little bit tougher for women. But um, when women ask for as much as men do, in most of the contexts in which this has been studied, women get as much as men do. Right. But the biggest gender difference in negotiation is women not knowing that they can negotiate. Yes. Yes, you're right. Employers are willing to pay women as much as men, but we need to take responsibility for asking for as much as men do, as many times as it takes. And then on that same page, you're right. Women are far less likely than men are to realize they can negotiate. Yeah, there was a study that one of my colleagues, Barbara Biasi, did. She's an economist here at Yale, and she looked at teacher pay in Wisconsin before and after unionization. And when 
contracts weren't unionized anymore, they became negotiable. And men realized that they could negotiate, and so they did. And women didn't realize they could negotiate, and so they didn't. You know, of course, some did, but many didn't. And there was pay parity between male and female teachers until that contract change. And then every single year, there was a pay gap that widened year by year as men were negotiating and then they were negotiating again and then they were getting raises on top of the raises that they had already gotten. But I really want to emphasize that I don't believe that it should be up to people who have less or less money or less power to be advocating for themselves to close the gap. I believe the most important thing for closing the gap is for all of us to work together on changing policies, procedures, systems, and making it more fair. And it's just along the way, while we're doing that work collectively, we can be advocating for ourselves and teaching other people, including women, how to advocate for themselves within the system that we have. I found it very interesting and I was very encouraged. I guess when you talk and and teach about that, is there a lot of surprise when you were talking to like a women's group? Women, um, they're surprised by the magnitude of the differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like in one study that I'm thinking of, another colleague uh, or incoming colleague of mine, um, Deb Small in the marketing department, found that there was a situation in a lab experiment where it was ambiguous whether you could negotiate. It did nothing said you could negotiate, but you'd be, they told you you'd be paid between three and $10. And then at the end of the study, they give you $3 and they say, here's $3 is $3. Okay. So they're giving you some little hint, but they're not saying, Hey, it's fine if you want to ask for more. And I believe it was 23% of the men asked, well, could I have more than $3? But only 3% of the women asked, could I have more than $3? And in that particular setup, you could ask for more until you got to 10. Um, But 97% of women walked away with $3 because even with that little cue of, is $3 okay? They just didn't know that they could negotiate. Interesting. Was that with Deborah Small and Linda Babcock? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the Boggle study. Yes, very interesting. Well, tell us about your favorite chapter. Well, my favorite chapter would be the chapter about my favorite person being my sweetie, Bella Vaz, my husband, who um, became my husband after he was my student, uh-huh. which was not as scandalous as it sounds. He was. Was it, the, a, was it a student? Was it the class on how to pick up guys? <laughs> Uh, I think it was reverse, Um, but (laughs) but he was in a fellowship program at Yale and he was auditing my class when he was already out in the world as a professional. Uh And um, in this story near the end of the book, which most people who've interviewed me haven't even gotten to this story because this is in chapter nine near the end, but I write about what it looks like to use all of these kinds of influence strategies and science that I've been talking about in the book, where you've ultimately become someone that people want to say yes to, even more than they already do. And Bella Best was already a master of influence, and he mastered it even more 
you know, through my class and while we work together. But I wanted to share an inspiring story as the capstone review chapter of the kinds of things that we can dream big about mm -hmm. when we think about the influence we want to have. And he got to change the course of history. And the story that I tell is about planning the first ever televised presidential elections in all of the Arab world where he had the idea, he raised all of the funding and helped this happen. The guy who became president because of these debates would have never, ever become president, um, but he's the president of Tunisia now. And I look at that and I see that there's uh, there are a lot of challenges in Tunisia. So it's not like this was this silver bullet. Now democracy is saved. Democracy is under threat everywhere. But I'm deeply inspired by Belibes Ben Creda and everyone else who's using their influence to solve some of the world's biggest problems. So I focus on the climate crisis, but um, I believe democracy is almost important. <laughs> yes. Well, and it was the most powerful chapter, and for a couple reasons. One is the story is unbelievable, and in particularly what is possible by uh, what you talk about in your book, but also it tied together. <laughs> everything in the book. In other words, uh, somebody who may not even been familiar with what happened there at that time, they could read through this and say, oh, okay, yeah, I see. Okay, I, I see how it all, I, you see how it all fits together in that last chapter. I'm glad of it worked. Thank you. Yeah. So, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, keep it easy and just say, make it as easy as possible for anyone to do the thing you're trying to influence them to do. Mm. That's easy to say, but hard to do. <laughs> okay, fine. All right. Well, <laughs> no. the easy thing for you to do, listeners, is ask the magic question, what would it take? Oh, okay, okay. No, no. The, the The hardest things to do are often very easy to, to say. You're so, so right. Let's give the listeners something to do until their copy of the book shows up in one of those 28 languages. What is one thing a listener could do today to to put in action an idea from your book, maybe like a like a fun homework assignment. Sure. I think we've given them a bunch of those. Yes. <laughs> um, and rather than heap on extra homework assignments, I'll just remind them of the 24-hour no challenge. This is a very fun one. And the 24-hour no challenge is even more fun if you use your influence to recruit a friend to do this with, and then you get to talk about it and debrief oh. after. So you can learn from their experience as well as from your experience. Oh, that's a great, like, like a workout partner. Yeah, like that. Yeah. So a question I like to ask first-time guests uh, and I hope you will come back because I can think of a few other book. I got a few book ideas for you out of this, and I should just let you know that I am full of ideas as long as I don't have to implement them. So be careful. <laughs> I would love to hear. I would love to hear. <laughs> but what books, looking back, have, have most inspired your work and career? The book that inspired me to even be on the path that I'm on was Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. Mm. And that won't surprise anyone knowing who knows what I do. This book was the Bible of influence, and he was an academic, and he had gone into the field. He worked undercover as a car salesman. And, and I do write about how these influence strategies he writes about have been used in a lot of transactional sort of ways. So my whole book, in a way, is um, it's like the daughter of that book, <laughs> and that book is the dad. Um, so, so these these go together and they're different, but they're 
they're copacetic. And I'm a huge fan of of Bob Cialdini. He was kind enough to blurb my book, and I will appreciate that forever. Ah, oh, um, yes. He, he's the, a very that's he's a very uh, very popular. And his book has been mentioned by so many yeah. uh, so many authors. And that book, I think he wrote it in 1984, and then he had a, a revised and expanded version come out about a year or two ago. Yes. Uh, it's, it's terrific. Yeah. Yes, and he has another book, Persuasion, that's uh-huh. also wonderful. Yeah. Um, and a fun book for people to read. I think anybody listening to this podcast who has any sort of interest in the dark side, I know you're already influ- interested in influence because that's what we do as marketers, right? Mm-hmm. And anyone who is interested in the dark side of influence, I think you will absolutely love this book by Maria Konnikova called The Confidence Game. It's a New York Times bestseller. She is a brilliant writer. She actually has a PhD in social psychology that she went and pursued just because she wanted to understand social sciences that deeply. And this book, The Confidence Game, is about con artists. She's an incredible storyteller, and you'll learn more about influence, and your jaw will drop, and you'll be absolutely inspired. Oh, wow. The Confidence Game. Why we fall for it? Dot, dot, dot. Every time. It's should, so fun. Yeah. And, you know, I should mention to, for the listener that there's a section in your book where you talk about how bad we are at spotting liars and what some of the things are we should be armed with for people who are trying to influence us for not good, but for bad. Yeah. That's a whole big, important topic we didn't get to, but people can read about it. Yeah. In book, yes. So, so that book came out in 2016. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of you might be looking forward to reading? There's an upcoming book that I'm excited about, and I haven't read it yet. It's called Things We Love by Aaron Ahuvia, who's a marketing professor at the University of Michigan. And he is the world's expert on non-human love. And what I mean is love of objects. And he writes about brand love. And I, I just find this whole concept fascinating. And he explores it very, very deeply. What does it mean to love inanimate things and he explores the joy and the and the sense of connection that we get from these kinds of relationships and his whole approach to it is just it's really fun it's really lovely and oh, i can't wait to read it things we love aaron ahuvia ah oh, the things we love how our passions it's, connect us and make us who we are yes, coming out july out. 2022 there you go thank ah, you okay wow interesting well super well At marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, uh, including all the books that have mentioned, uh, your site, your LinkedIn profile, your uh, Twitter account. And uh, now a word to you, dear dear listener. I I want to influence you. I want to ask you a big favor. I'm probably doing this wrong. But please reach out in some way to Zoe and congratulate her on the book and thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. You can send a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or uh, her website. And I want to quote, I don't normally quote at this point, but I want to quote from page 228 towards the very end of the book. She writes, if you've found this book helpful, I hope you'll share what you've learned with other people. Teach a tool, tell a story, discuss an idea, and maybe you'll find a minute to let me know how you put your influence into practice. Nothing would give me greater satisfaction than hearing your love stories. And a couple pages later, 
Zoe writes, it's been a joy to write this book for you. If you've enjoyed reading it, I hope you'll take action on your great ideas, and I'd love to hear how it goes. So she wants to hear from you folks, and uh, if nothing else, thank her for putting up with this knuckleheaded host. But guests on the show have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and uh, you know... This won't be Zoe's last book. So when her next book comes out, she's going to be thinking, hey, you know, which, which podcast do I want to come back on? Well, you know, make her feel like uh, she, she invested her time well by coming on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Closing quote. Reading this book will make you more knowledgeable about influence, but it's really wisdom and and impact we're after. Knowledgeable people win trivia contests. Wise people listen with open minds and healthy skepticism, asking, how can I improve on that idea? And who else needs to know this? That's the spirit in which I invite you to engage with this book. This approach to influence is about connecting to the powers of persuasion you were born with and strengthening them in order to make life better for everyone, starting with you. It isn't rocket science, but it is a science. It's also a love story. The book is Influence is Your Superpower, the science of winning hearts, sparking change, and making good things happen. The author is Zoe Chance. Zoe, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, you're the absolute best. Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 